Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. I want to tell you all a little story about something that happened, not just recently, but a couple years ago. I was walking through the church playground, the playground of our children's center, and there were these two little boys who were out there, and they were they were kind of playing together, but have you ever noticed when you see two little kids playing, and especially boys, if there's a conflict, they sort of start posturing with each other. They kind of start circling. And Well, what happened was that this one little boy had a dump truck, and the other little boy obviously wanted it. And so the one boy is playing, pretending he was just ignoring the other, and the other was just kind of circling. It's kind of like a shark or something. It kept circling, and it, every now and then he would sort of make a little bit of a feint inside, and it, would look, it looked like he was kind of probing to see if at some point he could get it. And so he was, as he's probing and circling, the other's just playing, but keeping, kind of giving him the side eye, if you will. And then all of a sudden, when the little boy playing with the truck got distracted, he looked away, and the other one, bam, he was in there, and he got the truck, and he started moving away with it. Well, the other one just immediately jumped up, started chasing him. I'm sitting there walking through. I thought, oh, I better break this up. But luckily, one of the teachers was, was right there and was able to intercept it before anything started. And these two little guys, I mean, they, I mean seriously, they were like four years old. These two little guys, are, they're posturing, they're kind of puffing up their chest, and they're, they're back and forth with each other. And It's my truck. No, it's my truck. I had a chance to, it's mine, it's mine. And then finally, one of them breaks down, and he just drops it. He just, he just decides to go nuclear. He says, I'm going to sue you. <laughs> my thought was, I wonder where he heard that. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up in the home of a lawyer, and I didn't even say that. I mean, that's not the way things were, went when I was growing up. You, you got into a playground tussle about something. There was no legal action taken. But this, this little guy said, I'm going to sue you. And I thought, well, I wonder where he heard that. And then I thought, well, of course, I know where he heard it. You know, he heard it either from his parents at home or he heard it from TV. You know, you all heard the old expression that, that children never misquote you. They repeat word for word what you shouldn't have said. Well, you know, one of the things that, that I think is true so much so with not just kids nowadays, but kids of my generation before, but now so, so even more with social media is that, is that our kids are constantly bombarded by advertisements. All the time they are getting messages, whether or not their parents want them to hear them or not. There's just stuff coming in constantly. And one of the, one of the types of ads... Certainly there are lots of different types, but, but there are two types of ads that I want to focus on this morning. One is the type of ad that really focuses, that really targets our anger. And I want you to think about all of the injury and lawsuit related advertisements that you'll see on TV, especially if you're just watching for a little while. My, my father was recently diagnosed with mesothelioma, and thank you all for your prayers about that. But you know, that made me angry. And, you know, it's like, how could he have lived with asbestos or whatever caused it for so long? And, and I started seeing more and more of those mesothelioma class action lawsuit ads. And I started thinking, yeah, yeah, we're going we're gonna to go after these guys. And then I started noticing the other ones. You know, we've all got our local heroes that are, that are so prominent to us. You've got the Texas Hammer. We've got, you know, we've got the, uh, we've got Thomas J. Henry. We've got Jeff Davis, you know, the guy with the fours, all four, 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 four. I'm doing a little bit of free advertising for these guys right now, I think. But, but there is definitely this, this idea out there that if you're injured physically or emotionally, whatever your grievance, 
these guys are tough enough to make sure that you get what you deserve, right? These guys are tough enough to make sure you get what you deserve. Well then, so I thought about those ads. And I thought, you know, but there are lots of other types of ads out there. Like they're the ones that, that sort of exploit our anger, telling us that we can, that they'll, that these guys will get us what we deserve. But then there's another kind of ad that really targets our appetites. And I mean that in a variety of different ways. Like, for example, there's, there are these, there's so many commercials about food, every restaurant coming out on screen with sizzling steaks and steamy cookie dough. And, and you know, maybe they've got people laughing at a bar with, you know, with a beer, you know, well-dressed men with a, with a cocktail or bourbon or something like that. And so they're the, they're the ads that appeal to our appetite for, for, for food, but then they're the ones that appeal to our appetite for sex. You know, you can have those same ads and, and it's filled with people scantily dressed in bikinis and things like that in exotic locations. And you've got all these, all these kinds of commercials that are appealing not just to those two types of appetites, for, but for experiences and clothing and jewelry and cars, all showcased by these beautiful models in exotic locations, making you wish that you have what they have, or at least that you were who they are. And you know, here's the thing, here's the really insidious thing. If you don't see those ads on TV or on social media, we create them ourselves, don't we? You know, what do we do? We go on a vacation, we post our best pictures on social media, and we say, we say, oh, well, this was such a blessing that God blessed me in this way, and I want you to see how much God's blessing me by taking me to this really exotic location. And we, we sort of disguise it as, thank you, Lord, when it's really, thank you, Lord, for letting me show up all my friends. Because I know this is going to make them ge- this is going to make them jealous, and all of a sudden we're just attracted to the number of clicks of an insta-worthy vacation. Advertisers get really good at seducing both our anger and our appetites. Politicians are really good at it too, exploiting both of these things. They will fight for what you deserve, and they will get you what you desire. As long as you vote for them and give them the office they deserve and that they desire. We live in a culture that capitalizes on these two ancient human flaws, our anger and our appetites every day. And when I say capitalize, I mean it. These things have a price tag. They would not be doing these things if there was not a market for them. So, Let me just tell you, this isn't a new problem. The early Christians were dealing with these same issues as well. And we can see that reflected in our scripture reading for today. Here's, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit different. I didn't do this in the early service, and I wish I had. But turn to chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians. It's on page 1134 in your Black Pew Bibles. Now, the words are in your bulletin. They're going to be on the screen behind me. But I want you to have the whole chapter there before you. Because the first half of the chapter deals with one topic, and the second half deals with a second topic, and then right in the middle is the part that we're going to be reading. But it actually has to do with all of the chapter. So we're going to start in we're going to start in verse nine. But I want you to have that handy and keep it handy with you. Paul writes this. He says, "Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God?" 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All these things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth, the Christian faith was young, and the believers were still trying to figure out what it meant to live as followers of Jesus Christ in a non-Christian world. And the problem was that the Judeo-Christian morality that was so prominent in the early church was different from the morality of the Greeks. The Corinthians had not grown up with the Ten Commandments. They'd never heard of the holiness code. Their old gods didn't care what they did. They lived far away on Mount Olympus, not among them in a tabernacle or the temple. They had their own culture. They had their own morality, their own customs. And for them, what we would call sin is the norm. In their world, prostitution was an accepted part of a religious and ritual practice. Homosexuality had a long history of acceptability. Idolatry was everywhere. Bribery of public officials was just part of the cost of doing business. Abortion and infanticide were not only tolerated, but expected in the case of unwanted children. And slavery was the norm. And so many of these great Christians wondered, these converts wondered, how could these things that used to be so normal and acceptable be, be bad now? How can something that feels so right be so wrong? Well, there was a behavior problem among the Greek Christians in Corinth because the gospel wasn't transforming them. They were just acting, continuing to act like everybody else. They weren't taking God's law seriously. And Paul was saying, do not be deceived. This is a big deal. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, to step back, is our culture that much different? I mean, we like to think so. We like to think that in our modern times, we're more advanced. We like to say so. But how does that hold up against the facts? How much of our behavior is different from the secular environment in which we live? Paul addressed two specific problems within the church. First, continuing on a topic that he's addressed already, he's dealing with conflict. Conflict in the congregation. And specifically, the way they handle conflict Primarily, apparently, through lawsuit. I'm going to sue you. That's their default. He wrote this. He said, when one of you has a grievance against another, 
Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He then turned to another habitual hangover of culture. I'll call it bodily immorality. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both, both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, why do I call it bodily immorality? Because he doesn't just mention sex here. He also mentions food. And he also says this, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What's he saying? He's saying just because something is legal doesn't mean it's good for you. So sorry, I'm going to warn you now. I'm going to start preaching. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling here. Think about all the things that are legal that are not helpful. Think of all the things that are legal that are abhorrent. Everything from vaping to drug use to abortion gambling, pornography, all of these things. We know it, alcohol, tattoos, everything, all these things that are legal but are not necessarily helpful. They're not necessarily healthy. We know these things, but we go on with them anyway. We'll talk about that issue more later, but, but we know that there are things that are legal that are not good for us, and yet we do them anyway. I'm not exempting myself from that. I'm not preaching at you. I'm with you in this. We're all there. But as you look at the list he talks about, he says, I mean, he, looks, he lists these sins there. And I want you to understand that it's not limited to this list. It's not exhaustive. There is something for everybody. Don't feel left out of this sermon. Now, we tend to read this passage exclusively as direction dealing with personal behavior and individual sin. And I don't want to exempt that. That is true. This is dealing with personal behavior and individual sin. But it's not just about personal behavior. This passage is about culture. It's a commentary on the environment that propagates and encourages these broken behaviors. Now, I can make this claim. I can make this distinction because the simple little word you appears 22 times in this passage, in this chapter, excuse me. And each time, it is plural. In other words, this is not you singular, it's y'all, plural, y'all. So this is not just about individual behavior. This is about group behavior about what the group, about what the community condones or even promotes. And so it's not just about personal vice, it's about culture. I keep using that word culture. Let's, let's dig a little bit more into that. What is culture? Pastor and author Todd Bolsinger defines culture this way. He says, culture is a set of default behaviors and usually unexamined or unreflected practices that make up the organizational life and ethos of a company, organization, community, family, or church. In short, he says, culture 
is the way we do things around here. It's just that, that underlying undercurrent of assumptions that we, all can't, that we all seem to know even if we can't articulate them. It is the air we breathe and it is either the light by which we see or the darkness that blinds us. It is a, the social and human environment of language, values, morals, rules, expectations, taboos, and norms in which we live and that shape our lives consciously or unconsciously. And like the ancient Corinthians, we are living in a cultural environment dominated and characterized by two dominant traits. Think about it. Like them, we live in a culture of conflict, a culture of grievance, which is all about what we deserve. And we also live in a culture of bodily immorality, a culture of indulgence, all about what we desire. Again, go home and watch TV for an hour and see if most of the ads do not relate to these two topics. And so when we're talking about the advertisements that provoke our grievance and tempt us to indulgence, the problem isn't just these ads. The problem is the culture in which these things thrive. Again, this does not grow in an unhealthy environment. It grows because we feed it. And when Paul says, and such were some of you, he's not just talking about them. He's talking about us. We are all lawbreakers. Whether it's white-collar sin described in the first half of, half of the chapter, or whether it's bodily immorality in the second half, he talks about both. We are all sinners not just the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality or thieves or the greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindlers, but also those who have hurt others by either their words or their actions or broken promises or have abused God's patience and forgiveness. We are all guilty of breaking God's laws. Again, think about it. Is our culture so different from theirs? We like to think so. We like to say so. But how does that hold up against the facts? The more things change, the more they stay the same. The Apostle John even has to warn us that if we say that we are without sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He even says, if we say that we are without sin, then we are calling God a liar. But the point of this passage is not simply to call us out as sinners, although it certainly does that. The point of this passage is to say this, that we're missing something because of this. Something is wrong. And I want you to look, read this whole chapter and see this. Several times in this passage, Paul pleads with his readers. He says, do you not know? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life 
In other words, don't you understand that you are made for eternity? Stop acting like this world is all and that this moment is, and this world, your status, your, your pride is all that matters. He says also, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Verse 15. Don't you understand that you are part of Christ's body, that you're part of Christ's family? Stop treating your body. Stop treating the bodies of others like there's something disposable and worthless, a toy for the abuse or thrill of your whim. Your body is not your own. It's God's. Don't y'all know that this is not how God wants us, wants it? Don't you get it? Y'all are supposed to be different. This is serious. Why? Because culture matters to God. He warns them in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Culture matters to God because the kingdom of God matters to God. Now, that's another term we need to break down, another expression we need to break down. It's a churchy word that we often use, but we don't always understand. The kingdom of God is not an alternate spiritual dimension. Jesus declared that it is here. It is not a time we look forward to in the sweet by and by. It is now, says Jesus. It is not a territory limited by geography with bureaucracy and borders. The kingdom of God is a culture. It's a culture. It's a way of living now and eternally. You see, God is sovereign. He has authority and power over all things. And one day, says Paul, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But that day is not yet. We haven't gotten there yet, but nevertheless, Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand. And he can say that because the kingdom of God exists and is visible wherever and whenever God is recognized and honored as king. And the law of God rules in our hearts and in our relationships. And if this is a kingdom, this kingdom must have a law. And and in its most clear and fundamental form, the law of God, the law of the kingdom, is defined and summarized by the law of Jesus. That you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you shall love one another, even as I have loved you. You see, from the beginning, God set his people apart so that this fallen world would be restored through them. He wanted his people to be different from the fallen culture around them. The apostle Peter explained the difference in this way. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous lights. God made his covenant with, he gave himself, he gave his law, and he even gave his son to the people to distinguish the Israelites from their pagan neighbors and to set them apart as his holy people so that this world could be restored. But instead of being different, we act just like everybody else, 
fighting tooth and nail for the prizes and scraps of this world in the courtroom. After all, when, Jesus, when God says he's put you in charge of everything, he says you're acting like everybody else, trying to fill the emptiness of your life and your heart with sex and food, when you're supposed to be filling it with God's spirit and be full. Why do culture and kingdom matter so much to God? They matter so much to God because people matter to God. And culture shapes and dictates what we believe about people and how we treat them. Culture matters to God because the truth about him and his own name and his integrity and his honor and reputation and his works matter to him. Because culture shapes what we believe about God and it shapes whether or not we take him seriously and whether or not we're willing to bet our lives on him or if he's just an extra that we add on to our, to our wardrobe. Culture matters to God because you matter to God. Do you know that God has amazing plans for your life and his plans are always so much greater than our plans? God created you in his image and the Bible says that you were bought at a price. That's the last line of this chapter. You matter to God and you're worth the life of his own son, his own body on the cross so that you might be dead to sin and alive to all that is good. So I want to say a special word though about sexual immorality here because I think that this is, this is a topic that we cannot dodge in our culture today. And I want you to understand, this is no less important than that part about the, the white-collar sin that he talks about in the beginning, suing one another. But among all the other sins of which we are exposed and capable, sexual immorality seems to be singled out for focused attention. Why is that? Look at the second part of verse 18. He writes, "...flee from sexual immorality." Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The Bible's warning here is that even though sexual sin is not necessarily more grave than murder or idolatry or gluttony or any other sin, it is more dangerous because it is more insidious. Because sexual sin often comes in a pretty package of physical pleasure or romance, or emotional satisfaction, and therefore its corruption and betrayal sneak unnoticed past our defenses and straight into our hearts. What Paul is saying is that the attractions and temptations of physical pleasures, of sexual sin, are so powerful that a person would break even his own rules and sin against himself in other words, sexual sin will make you do things that you said you would never do. Turn against people you said you would never turn against and even deny your own identity. Let me give you an example. I had a friend who was a really good businessman. He owned his own flooring and carpeting business. And he was one of those guys who was so honest and so reliable that you did not need a contract to know that, you would get, that he would give you his best work. He would give it to you on time and on budget every time. But he started living with this woman. And shortly after that, I started noticing changes. He started to break his own rules. 
especially about debt. A little bit at first, and then flagrantly. His personal habits changed, especially his drinking increased. The bank wouldn't give him the credit he needed. He cut corners and he lost customers. He wanted to turn it all around, but then he discovered that he no longer had control. He was breaking his own rules. And one day, another friend of ours said, you know, the old you would have fired the new you. On the more domestic side, he stopped coming to church. He spent less and less time with his own children, and he did it all so that he could spend time with her. For the sake of sex, he was willing to throw it all away. He was willing to break his own rules and betray himself, killing the business that he had worked so hard to build. Later, I asked him how and why he had let it happen. He said simply, I got so wrapped up in the sex that nothing else seemed to matter. Too often in our hedonistic culture, sex is celebrated as a liberating Well, it will. It'll liberate you from your relationships, from your money, from your identity, from a host of other things. We falsely believe that there is freedom in doing what feels good and living as we wish. But like all sin, sexual sexual sin has consequences. Chief among them, it makes them act foolishly. For the sake of, of sex, people will betray their spouses, their friends, their children, their church, their theological convictions, their own identity, and they will even betray God. They begin saying, I love sex more than I love God. I need sex more than I need God. I want sex more than I want God. And this is any kind of sexual immorality, not just one exclusively. So how serious is this? God gave us his own son to bring us back. Jesus gave his life for this. And more importantly, Jesus didn't come just to die for our sins. He came to declare the kingdom of God. In other words, our faith, the gospel, is not just about personal forgiveness, but it's about a culture governed by his law and his love. Loving God, loving our neighbors, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus gave his life for that. He gave his life for something different. Jesus died so that we could inherit something different. And so the kingdom of God is not a culture of grievance where it's all about getting what I deserve. And it's not a culture of indulgence where it's all about getting what I desire, but a culture of difference of transformation. As Paul says, and so were some of you. We're all in this bucket. We're all on this train. We're all on this bus. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Because our God didn't want us to be stuck in the same old sin and brokenness and confusion and stress of the world. He wanted us to have something different. Instead of being a people of grievance, we're called to be people of reconciliation, peacemakers. Instead of being a culture of indulgence, we're called to be a people who are filled with the fullness of God and confident in the joy of knowing that we are forgiven and loved and adopted by him. 
And instead of being just like everyone else, we are called to be people with a purpose. The ambassadors of his kingdom and a rescue party for his lost children. Your heavenly father wants something different for us and for his creation. A culture where people are ruled by the laws of Jesus instead of the customs and statutes of grievance. A culture where people, our bodies, our minds, our spirits are treated as holy instead of being commodified, bought and sold, used and abused for the sake of votes and money. You know, I, I think about this weekend that 22 years ago, on September 11th, 2001, as thousands of people were running away from the collapsing World Trade Center and the burning Pentagon, there were also hundreds of police and firefighters running toward the disaster. And collectively, we all watched in awe as these men and women did whatever they had to do to save as many lives as they could. And we all knew that there was something different about those people. We all saw it. They set aside their grievances and their desires to make a difference. The Lord has set us apart so that the world will see something different. Do we have the courage to cultivate a culture of difference, a gospel culture within this world? You pray with me, Lord, this is hard stuff because we are, we are so deep in our own culture that sometimes we can't tell the difference, and yet you have given us your Son as the light that guides us. He is the way and the truth and the life. So, Lord, help us by him and by your Holy Spirit to have the, cult, to have the courage to be different so that we can not only save ourselves, but so that, more importantly, we will be capable of rescuing God's other lost children. We pray these things in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.